Hi, Clint. Uh, so nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. I would pronounce it equanimity or equanimity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question, actually. And it's actually a question that I field really often uh, when I talk about equanimity or offer a program on equanimity, as I'm going to be doing so next month. This question often comes up. What, what exactly is equanimity? And so from, uh, from the way I'll be teaching anyway, from the perspective I'll be offering, it, equanimity is the ability to see things as they are, as they arise, as they're presented to our nervous system, rather than seeing things as how we think they are or how we think they should be, uh, rather than seeing things as how we think they were in the past, or not, Im not imposing how we think things should be in the future. So we really, yeah, really the idea is to, to practice freeing ourselves uh, from any opinions, any preferences, any likes and dislikes, really opening our heart to meet whatever's arising in the present moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be drawing uh, very heavily in the program that I'm offering on uh, on Zen. And particularly there's a, I think the, the principle that you're pointing to, there's a very famous Zen poem called uh, the, the Faith in Mind Prayer Poem. Uh, and I actually have a little bit of it here. I'll just read it. Um, so these are the first two stanzas and it goes on for I think about 20 something stanzas, but I'll just read the first two to give a flavor of uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attraction and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth of the matter, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what one likes against what one doesn't is the disease of the mind. Uh -huh. <laughs> True. Yeah, there have been hundreds and hundreds of translations of this poem. Uh, and this is my teacher, Ken McLeod. Uh, this is his rendition of uh, these two stanzas. Yeah. yeah. It sure does. Yeah, it's really, you know, the the first line, this great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. It really 
really kind of draws the reader in or the listener in with this question of like, what? <laughs> Tell me more, you know? Uh, and, and I really, I like how evocative uh, that is, you know, really bringing one into this practice. Tell me more, you know, how can we have no preferences? And then it goes on. Uh, attraction and aversion are both absent. Everything becomes clear and undisguised. And so there it's really pointing at that idea that uh, when we look out in the world and, you, you know, if we really are sensitive to what's happening in our own mind, in our own heart, we very quickly recognize that we're pretty constantly in a state of attraction or aversion or indifference. Pretty much all the time. <laughs> and and so that when 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 one really comes to that, whoa, I'm I'm everything is cloudy and disguised by my attractions, my aversions. And yeah. Mm -hmm. oh yeah it, it, well we're wired to be that way as the human nervous system is wired to push against the threatening and, and move towards the inviting or, you know, push against, you know, the things that we cannot, the rocks and, and move towards the grapes. Right. And, and so as a survival, our nervous system had to develop in that way. Um, but, you know, the traditions where these teachings come from, they recognize that that survival mechanism is outdated. And in fact, it's causing a great deal of suffering. So the idea now is that we don't need to be doing, we don't need to be acting on that habitual tendency any longer, that we can actually uh, evolve beyond that. That's the idea. Yeah, so that that's the idea behind equanimity and the practices of equanimity that, that I teach, is to try to allow people to see experience reality however you want to frame that as it lands in the nervous system prior to our preferences and prejudices prior to our likes and dislikes Yeah, and that's, I think that's, that's very true. You have to, the dislike can arise, you know, the, the feeling of being, of aversion arises in the, in the body, in the heart. But then with some awareness, with some practice, we, we start to feel what that feels like in the body. Say, so, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to act out of aversion in this situation you know, this person is, is not an enemy, you know, and sometimes our nervous system can perceive enemy uh, when there's in fact a friend there, 
or a neutral person there, right? And so just to recognize, oh, that's a version that's arising. I can feel that in my body. I can feel that in my heart. Or I could recognize the averse thoughts in the mind and not react to that. <laughs> so that's, it is, yes, you're right. And I know I recognize that often when I talk about things like this, it, uh, it comes off sounding very easy. Uh, but arguably, it's the, the challenge of the ages past. I mean, these teachings are 25, 2600 years old. And, uh, and we're still just kind of getting into them uh, as a, you know, as a, a body of practitioners, it's still very few people who actually master the practices of equanimity can be done, though. can be done, it has been done. Uh, and that's uh, with that voice of encouragement we move forward into the practice yeah yeah so i'll talk a little bit about that so the retreat opens it's online uh, so this is open for everyone around the world uh, it runs from September 26th to November 18th, uh, 2021. Uh, I'll work with Pacific Coast Time, so uh, 6 p.m. Pacific Coast Time. And we meet twice a week. Uh, it, it'll be Sunday evenings and Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific Coast Time. And I'm also offering a, a second section for people in Europe and for other people who find that other time a little restrictive for whatever reason. Uh, and so that's going to be uh, starting a day after September 27th, running to November 18th, uh, 9 a.m. UK time. So there's two sections. Uh, that one, the UK one, meets on Monday mornings and Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. Uh, and we will be taking a very, very deep dive into the poem, uh, the two stanzas of the Faith and Mind prayer poem. Uh, it's from the third patriarch of Zen, uh, Sin Sin Tui. I think I, oh no, Sin Sin Ming. Yeah. Oh, it was very, very influenced by Taoism then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Chinese, well, Zen came over from India to China and then very quickly intermingled with Zen, uh, with Taoism very heavily. Yeah, uh, so yeah, and we'll be looking at a lot of Taoist writings as well. Uh, a lot of Changzu and a lot, of, a lot of Lao Tzu. I'll also be bringing in some Richard Rohr uh, and uh, some uh, Father Thomas Keating. And I'll be bringing in some of my own writing, uh, and we'll be looking at some some of the Buddha's writings as well. Uh, so uh, it's it's pretty. The retreat itself is actually this is more a more um, wider scope of writing material than I've used in any other course before. I'll be using quite a lot of literature, a lot of poetry, a lot of art forms, uh, particularly from the Zen tradition. Uh, to try to bring about uh, this this experience of equanimity in the participants, yeah. So, 
Oh, thanks for asking. That's always the, the bottom line is always good to provide. Yeah. <laughs> so it's $99 for all eight weeks. Uh, if people want to sign up and do the live uh, in-person experience, uh, that's encouraged. I, I cap the retreat at 15 participants. Uh, and I do that so that there is this real family kind of vibe, this cohort vibe that gets cultivated. Uh, people get to know each other. We all kind of become friends and we're all kind of going through this process of, of growth and uh, exploration together. So it really is, is really becoming quite a nice uh, vibe in the previous retreats that I've offered. It's over Zoom, yeah. And so if one doesn't want to make the live sessions, perhaps the times don't work for that person, they're working at that time, or maybe they can make only half of the Zoom sessions, or you can just do one or two. They're all recorded, so one can actually do the whole program at their own pace. It's laid out to be an eight-week program, but some people who sign up for the program, they don't come to the Zoom session, so they do it over 16 weeks. They just do one session a week rather than two, or they do the whole session in, in 10 weeks or so forth. So it's really up to whoever signs up, however, whatever suits them best, their schedule, their life, uh, whatever they can really um, handle and hold uh, at that time for them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, the book, I have it here, actually. Uh, the Naked Now by Richard Rohr, I'll be drawing from. Uh, and a little bit of Father Thomas Keating, just separate little excerpts of poems that I've, I've taken from the internet, actually, uh, that I find really speak to the quality of equanimity uh, quite deeply. And yeah, it's, you know, so I'll, I'll read just a little bit of this very traditional practice uh, that we'll be using um, to get kind of give the listeners a feel of, of how one might cultivate an experience of equanimity. Because just reading that poem, one might feel a little bit like it's a little bit abstract. Uh, so to give a little bit of a more of a concrete practice, um, I'll invite people into meditation or contemplation using phrases and so i'll just kind of read through the phrases here and maybe the listeners can kind of get a feel for that uh if that's okay uh clint okay and clint yeah maybe you know follow along maybe you can get a feel for for this equanimity that i'll be offering here uh so the first phrase uh, may i be free from preference and prejudice. So the idea is to just let the phrase kind of land in your heart or in your mind, in your nervous system. May I be free from preference and prejudice. May I know things just as they are. May I experience the world knowing me just as I am. 
May I see into whatever arises. And so those are the phrases that we'll be meditating with uh, periodically throughout the course. We start with ourself and work for four weeks pretty much strictly with our own being, seeing ourself with equanimity and seeing the rest of the world with equanimity. And then we offer that to others. We offer the ability to see with equanimity themselves and others to loved ones, to people we don't know, to people we don't like, which is always quite interesting, and to the entire world. So one has the opportunity to try to feel into what it might be like to live in a world where everyone is free from preference and prejudice, like that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Clint. You're bringing up such a, a really great point. And I think this would be a question of from a lot of people who might be listening to this. So I really appreciate that. And, and so I'll speak to that. You're right. It's, it's not really likely that any of us will be able to move through our life without preference, right? I mean, just the, the simple fact of going to the fridge and looking for something to eat or turning on the radio and deciding what we want to listen to, uh, there's preference there and probably a good deal of prejudice there. But the idea is to, to find and feel into that space that exists in, in our being before the preference and prejudice. And, and then having access to that space when the surprises do arise in life. And so I'll use your example, Clint, of getting a flat tire. So, for example, if I'm driving and, it, you know, it's raining and, and, and storming and stuff, and maybe I'm in a hurry to get somewhere and boom, I get a flat tire, right? So how useful is it to, to kind of get angry and reactive against so, so the experience lands in the nervous system. We have this experience, the flat tire's there, it's raining out, I'm going to get wet. That experience is there. When we 
when we have that and we hold that experience in the preference and prejudice, then immediately we're going to get upset, frustrated, angry, disturbed, whatever. How helpful is all of that to go change a tire? Right? And, and, and so, so there we can kind of see, well, if I can remain in equanimity, I have the flat tire, take a deep breath, I'm going to get wet, I'm not going to make my appointment on time. You know, get out of the car, open the trunk, get the jack, and start changing the tire. If if one can remain in that state, you'll have a lot more energy to change the tire with. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, well that's that's the idea and that's you know where these practices are ideally designed to bring one to. And you know, I it doesn't happen in in you know one practice or five practices or an eight week course. It's really one when one you know takes up these practices, it's a lifetime of practice as you know, Clint. And so so we just kind of, you know, shine the light on the sapling in the heart of equanimity, right? And then the, the, as we continue to just kind of beam that sunlight of equanimity down on that sapling, eventually uh, that sapling starts to grow in the direction of equanimity. And so, you know, day in, day out, engaging in these practices, doesn't have to be for very long. It could be five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, or it could be, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes every other day. But that consistent, you know, loving that sapling with equanimity or that consistent shining that attention, that light of attention on the quality of equanimity over and over again, we, we slowly, gradually start to grow in that direction. And so eventually, with practice, with time, it might start with something like getting a, a, an unexpected phone call from somebody with, with a, you know, oh, you're, you're, we found your dog or something like that. Or, or you know, um, oh, we found your, your cat. She's, she's next door. She ran away. You might get a little frustrated, but then, oh, I've been practicing equanimity for a month, so I Oh, okay. I can just see that frustration, let it go, just accept the cat ran away and just go get her. Right. You start with things like that, something very small. You have, you know, maybe another example would be like I have some time set aside in the afternoon to, to really engage in some studies. But then I get, you know, a barrage of like phone calls during that time. Right. And say, okay, well, this phone call needs to be attended to, this other you know, phone call needs to be answered and this email needs to be answered. And just to accept that, okay, this is what is right now, rather than putting my 
if I if I layer that on, if I layer my preferences and prejudices on top of that, I still have to answer that phone call. I still have to answer that email. But that negative charge, that negative emotion, is going to be laced into that email, or it's going to it's going to be playing a part in that phone conversation. Uh, Absolutely. 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 It could be. <laughs> sure. It might just, it, I might say, I might write, if I'm answering an email, I might be just a little less diplomatic if I have to deliver some, some uh, news that might land in an unfavorable way to the reader, you know, or, or something like that. If I have, if I'm carrying this idea that, oh, I'd really rather be meditating right now, but I have to answer this email, you know, and, and if I have that outlook as I'm writing the email, Yes, it, undoubtedly, you know, I, I'm not in the present moment when I'm doing that. I, I'm, I'm somewhat agitated, disturbed, perhaps. And however that shows up, whether it's only in my own nervous system, which is harmful enough, or it manifests in the email itself or later conversations with that person. Uh, and, it, and this is great because here we can see how even in the simplest motions forward, just a little bit of skillfulness with the quality of equanimity adds to great peace of mind. And so that's, it's, it's such a beautiful practice in that way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the idea is that is that we just keep planting those seeds of equanimity in the heart. Uh, and, you know, very often people are surprised. You know, they'll do these practices for two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, however long, a year, two years. And suddenly they'll come back to me and they'll say, oh, I was at the grocery store and, you know, there was a line out the door and I was in the express lane and the person in front of me had, you know, 15 items instead of 12. And I would have gotten really upset. And, and, uh, but I, I just offered the phrase to myself, may I be free from preference and prejudice. And I was calm and I was able to be there. And, and you know, that's generally more often than, than not how these practices start to take root. You know, it's not on the meditation cushion or it's not in the retreat itself, but very often outside of the retreat, somebody will be in their experience of life and something will come up that would have thrown that person off their balance and they'll be able to remain in balance with that. That's very, very often how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think in, in, in many ways that's true. Um, so generally what happens in the nervous system with, with, a, with, with trauma is our, our nervous system, as you mentioned, gets kind of hijacked. We go into this fight, flight, or freeze response. And that's actually normal. It's actually super intelligent when you think about it, how, how, when we encounter something that might be traumatic, you know, a, a dangerous situation, I'll speak from my own my own experience, and and I want to I want to just mention here that I'll be talking about something that was traumatic for me, and if anybody's listening has some experience with trauma, just just know that I'll be I'll be mentioning some traumatic experience. It has to do with September 11th. And, and I just want to put a trigger warning at the front here before I go into this story. Uh, so that being said, you know, I was in New York City during in Manhattan during September 11th and saw the events unfold there in 2001. And uh, my nervous system immediately went into flight response. Like I just, all I wanted to do was run. Uh, but I was in a crowd of people, and it was just impossible to to move. And so I was literally frozen in place. And so all of that energy uh, that wanted to move me forward, that that, and it's it's it, the energy is, it's incomprehensible how strong it is. Uh, it is literally the energy that. Uh, an antelope would use to get away from a cheetah. It, it, it's, you know, like everything's moving at 2000 miles an hour, but the brakes are applied at the same time. That's what it feels like when you're in that. Kind of yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in my situation, thank you. Yeah. Uh, in my situation, the freeze response was kind of forced upon me because I was in a crowd. And so my everything in me wanted to be moving forward, but I had to be still at the same time. So without the, the natural uh, flight response available, all of that energy, that 2,000 miles an hour energy got trapped in my nervous system. And, and so that's what causes the trauma. It's actually not the event. It, it wasn't the buildings coming down. It wasn't the planes. It wasn't any of that. It was actually, it was how my body's response, how, how my comprehension of that event was, and how I was unable to discharge the energy that was trapped in the nervous system. So when that kind of event happens to, to somebody, uh, and there, there's all this energy stored in the in the nervous system. It becomes really quite unconscious. It's not it's not something we're aware of, you know. And so days, weeks, months, and years can go by, and we still get agitated. Like in my example, I would get agitated when I just saw an airplane. 
or I would get agitated when, you know, um, when I heard an airplane go by, things like that, you know, so normal, normal events start to become really triggers, you know. Uh, so the equanimity can come in by first, okay, coming back to the present moment, saying, oh, that is just, there is just a plane moving by. May I know things just as they are, right? And so that phrase of equanimity, so perhaps the plane is moving, we go into that immediate trigger response of flight, you know, or freeze, whatever the case may be or fight for some people. And so to recognize, okay, this is, this is what's happening right now. May I know things just as they are. And so if you're in a place where you're having a, a response to, to be able to recalibrate your nervous system. And so I'll just kind of give a few ways that that might happen. Uh, present moment awareness is always good for moving away from a, a traumatic trigger. Uh, so in that case, the, the present moment awareness would have been the sound of the airplane passing overhead. So one might want to use sensations arising from the feet, for example, or sensations of clothing on the legs, or taking a deep breath. And when one takes a deep breath in and then takes an even deeper breath out, like a slow exhalation out, that literally calms the heart because our heartbeat is, is connected to the out-breath. And so if we take a slower out-breath, we breathe in, maybe you can count the breath, counting in, counting to four. And if you count out, count to five or six. Uh, that almost automatically slows the nervous system, brings a sense of calm to the nervous system like that. The counting, by the way, has an extra benefit to that. Our traumatic responses, our triggers, uh, happen when the nervous system uh, interprets something in, in the environment as a threat, and that gets sent into the reptilian brainstem, the oldest part of our brain. That reptilian brainstem has no concept of numbers or verbal thought at all. And so by counting the breath, you're activating the neocortex, the area of the brain of logic, the area of the brain that can then inform the nervous system that it's just a plane passing overhead, that there's nothing to be afraid of. And so all of that coming back to that practice of, may I know things just as they are? May I know that that is just an airplane passing overhead. It's not, there's no threat, there's no danger. Uh, so in that way, you know, practicing working with trauma or traumatic material can be very, uh, can go hand in hand uh, with working with the practices of equanimity. Yes, very much so, yeah. <laughs> good yeah yeah i mean it's it's amazing trauma is such a it's such a normal experience you know uh just to normalize that i think is really important 
Uh, the studies that I've read recently say up to 97% of the world will experience some sort of traumatic experience in their lifetime. But the difference is, is that for many people that, that the energy that gets circulated, that fight or flight or freeze response, can then immediately discharge in some healthy way. And people's nervous system can then recalibrate you know, 10, 15 minutes, an hour later, two hours later, but pretty soon after the, the initial event, the nervous system returns back to what's called homeostasis, that, that resting place, the green zone, if you will. Uh, if it becomes a, a you know, post-traumatic stress, uh, that happens when that, that energy, that fight, flight, or freeze energy uh, is stuck in the body. It can't get released from the nervous system. Then, then all sorts of uh, symptoms arise as a result of that. Yeah, that's that's the idea, the task. Uh, and so here, if I if I may, I'll refer the listeners to a couple of other people who, who are really, really uh, profound healers of trauma. Uh, the first is uh, Peter Levine. Uh, he's got a couple of really outstanding books out. Uh, one is called Waking the Tiger, and the other is called In an Unspoken Voice. Uh, he's got many, many books out, but those are the two that I can, I can speak to personally, the two that I've read. Uh, I actually recently finished an online course uh, that he offers through Sounds True, uh, and the course is called Healing Trauma. Uh, beautiful, beautiful course. I highly recommend it. Uh, Peter Levine's uh, method of healing trauma is it's really gentle, and that's what I really like about it. It's, it's really... Um, he doesn't bring people back through the traumatic event. Uh, he actually works pretty much, I want to say pretty much solely on the energy of trauma that's trapped in the nervous system. And so, for example, uh, if somebody has a, like a response that I had at September 11th, where I could feel all I could feel like is I wanted to run and was thwarted, that, that flea energy is trapped in the body. Then once that's identified, uh, you can just you could just feel into the fear and just run as fast as you can. So there's no need to kind of relive the trauma as was once previously thought by, by, by many psychologists. Uh, one could just identify what the energy is that's trapped and find a healthy way to release that. And yeah, and just run, and that's it. And then there's some other exercises that would go along with that. Perhaps you know, running, running, running as fast as I can, and then perhaps running on top of a. In, in New York City, there might be a top of like a construction site, like an urban construction site. I'm just running to the top of that and then like, you know, beating my chest and making like really loud, you know, ah, sounds like this real, uh, this real enactment, embodiment of power and strength and fearlessness. 
uh, that would be like something to to really enhance that experience. Uh, and so that, those are the types of exercises that, that Peter speaks to. Some of them are really much more accessible than that, things you can do in your own living room. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, so one of the really um, fundamental aspects of trauma is very often shame. Many times, yeah, many they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, like many therapists will ask if if a, if a client is feeling shame, they might dig a little bit deeper to see if there's some underlying trauma underneath that. Uh, and so, again, so once one has identified, okay, yeah, I'm really you know having trouble with shame, this inner critic that's you know really shaming me, you know, pretty consistently. Uh, once that's identified. Peter asks uh, one to try to embody what that might feel like by sitting in a chair and then slowly, slowly leaning forward as if somebody's shaming you. So you might feel, I'm doing it now as I'm speaking, actually. You might feel like your shoulders are hunching over and your vertebrae are slowly, your head's moving down towards your knees in the chair and you're just feeling like maybe your face even kind of makes a face of like being shamed right and really just embodying that what that shame feels like and just staying there for like two or three breaths and then when it feels ready when you feel like you want to do so slowly start sitting upright and straight allowing your spine to each vertebrae becoming straighter and straighter up the back and your shoulders kind of might want to allow your shoulders to take on a proud kind of feeling, you know, making your shoulders really broad as your neck straightens up and make your head up straight and really kind of imagine somebody has a thread and they're pulling at the thread at the top of the head. So to, to really bring your head as far straight against the top vertebrae as possible, really embodying this pride and the strength and power in the posture like that. And just to stay there for as long as feels good for you. And, and that's, that's it. And so you could do that maybe once or twice. It's really just like a minute or two do it once or twice every day or every other day like that and the body starts to release that that energy of shame Yeah. And, and because pride is the, an antidote to shame, right? Pride is, is the opposite of shame. And so by, by Im fully embodying and feeling into the, the energy of shame that's there held in the body, and then by slowly moving out of that into a posture of pride and really embodying pride and pride is also in us. As, as beings, we, we, 
we have the need to be proud. And we, we all know what it feels like to, to accomplish something that we can be proud of, right? And so we all have that as a felt sense in the body. And so, but it just might've gotten forgotten somewhere. And so, so by, you know, first embodying the shame, feeling into that, and then moving from that so that we can embody a posture of pride and holding that pride, uh, even for just a few seconds, uh, it's, it's really healing for, for that shame energy. Uh, it's very, very profound exercise. Yeah, and so that's a very kind of a typical, very Peter Levine-esque offering uh, where, where he asks us to, to really just, you know, work with the somatic. His school is called Somatic Experiencing. Uh, for those of us who are, who are listening who might be interested, if you Google Peter Levine or just look up uh, Somatic Experiencing online, uh, you'll find an abundance of material. Uh, for trauma healing in this in this fashion in this method, yeah. and the other person I was going to reference is Gabor Mate, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful teacher healer. Uh, again, uh, if you Google Gabor Mate, uh, you'll find a, an abundance of amazing YouTube videos uh, that he offers, uh, you know, freely uh, with amazing teachings on on trauma healing. Uh, Gabor has a, a much different approach uh, than Peter Levine. He's very coming very much from a therapeutic approach, a, a therapy approach, a lot of talking, a lot of working with the inner critic and things like that. Uh, but a very, very effective, very extremely effective healer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... Um, and equanimity too. Well, holding equanimity in, in all of that, you know, working with trauma, holding, holding a heart of compassion, a feather light touch, you know, and seeing ourselves as we are. Uh, and want to bring it back to that if I can. Uh, Krishnamurti, the great philosopher. Uh, once said the highest form of human intelligence is the ability to, to, experience ourselves free from judgment. And uh, if we're really talking about shame, that's really that inner shame is our is judging ourselves over and over again, right? So we're feeling judged, right? Absolutely. And so that experience of, you know, the third phrase that we'll be working with on the retreat, may I experience the world Knowing me just as I am. What would that be like, you know, to, to actually experience the world knowing us? I mean, from, from, a, uh, from, a, from my understanding of God, that, that's experiencing the eyes of God. Experiencing being seen through the eyes of God. Experience the world knowing me just as I am. I mean, when I work with that phrase, it's just like, wow, it's so powerful. Uh, yeah, and, and a great way of releasing that shame energy or, or any kind of trauma that might be surrounding that. 
<laughs> Me too. I love that. I love this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, I think, I hope we'll, we'll, we've offered something beneficial to, to some people who are listening. <laughs> Sure, sure, absolutely. I'll do that. Yeah, I'll send you a link right over uh, when we when we sign off. Uh, for those of us, uh, for those listeners who are interested, I can uh, just offer uh, my website address. Uh, you can find information there as well. It's uh, suchsweetthunder.org. And if you go to the retreats and programs page. Uh, you can click on that and that'll take you uh, to the signups for this retreat that I'll be offering. Uh, again, launching September 26th or 7th, depending where you are in the world. Um, also offering, I, I also teach one-on-one, -on -one, so if people are interested in that, uh, they could look at the online studies page at the same website and uh, all the information you, you would need uh, to uh, sign up for one-to-one -one sessions with me. Uh, with meditation, um, great. Feel free to to send me an email that way, or or just sign up through the website. Yeah, and thanks, Clint. Uh, always a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to the next one. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah.